I remember I had、um, an incident in、um, in Mozambique where、um, uh, I encountered some rebel tribes, and we were shot at by them、uh, by guerrilla、uh, guerrilla rebels in northern Sudan. And you know, the villagers had told me like, "Do not go there." Welcome to the Sam Gash podcast. These are conversations with trailblazers, rule breakers, and those who pave their own lane and venture boldly into the unknown. By entering this uncharted arena, they inevitably stumble. Yet all of my guests display this inability to innovate and contribute, even when the odds are not in their favour. We skip over their highlights reel and go into the guts of who they are and what they believe in. And I am your host, Samantha Gash. I am a former lawyer. Endurance athlete and social impact entrepreneur. Don't forget, if you enjoy this conversation and have found it of value, to please subscribe, rate, and review. I hope you enjoy. You're about to go into the world of Mario Rigby, who was born in Turks and Caicos Islands and spent his childhood in a small village in Germany before moving back to the Caribbean and then to Toronto at the age of 16. Now, if you've heard of Mario, it is likely because of his two-year solo voyage, where he covered the length of Africa from south to north entirely by foot and kayak. It was twelve thousand kilometers, which would take him through South Africa, Mozambique, Malawi, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, Ethiopia, Sudan, and Egypt. It's a wild journey. It was seven hundred and forty days on the road, sixty days on water. He had a budget of approximately twenty thousand dollars that had no sponsorship dollars. Just some of the things that he faced was a contraction of malaria, seven arrests by police in three different countries, and you know what? I'm not going to mention any more highlights because we go into it in the podcast. You know, Mario has also cycled all the way across Canada, and prior to embarking on crossing Africa, he was one of Toronto's top fitness experts and group training specialists. And among one of his many other accomplishments is that he was a former professional track and field athlete, representing Turks and Caicos Islands. This conversation looks at the challenge of growing up in a place where you may look like people, but your behaviour is different based on your past experiences and how you overcome that. We discuss the flexibility of the mind that is required to undertake a crossing, such as going across Africa. The experiences that he faced, which include the immense hospitality of the people and throughout that entire continent, the community that he got to be a part of, we look at the partnership of an Italian stranger, and we look at his big passion right now, which is advocating for diversity in the outdoors. He lives it through practice, but he also talks about it, and I love that that's where the conversation finished with, and it's also the conversation that is so critical today and moving forward. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It was an absolute pleasure to have Mario on the podcast. Are you based in Toronto right now? I'm in. I'm in Toronto. Correct. Yes. The weather must be getting much warmer there now. You know what? Not only is it warmer, it is actually incre- it's been incredibly hot for the last couple of weeks now, and、um, I must say that、uh, I think we're catching up to you guys. <laughs> Oh, it's it's getting cold. Like so, we're, we're obviously、oh. like reverse weather now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's people don't think of Australia as cold, but like absolute chill in the air. I mean, I live in this like very foresty national park,、mm. and um, it's always a couple of de- degrees colder than it is in 
in like Melbourne CBD. Um, are you in the city in Toronto? I mean, I'm guessing you're in kind of cityscape. I am, yeah. So I'm, uh, I live downtown um, Toronto. I've kind of always been downtown Toronto. I think after, you know, small island, small village, that's kind of where you gravitate to for a while. But I actually sit in a very um, quaint, uh, beautiful little, like little Italy uh, neighborhood. And um, there's a lot of uh, innovative people in this area. So that's what draws me here is like, I'm, I'm, I'm very like into the sociability of how humanity moves around. I think that's spectacular. And, um, and also Toronto has a lot of hikes and paths that a lot of people um, don't actually miss when they come here, right? Like we have full of forests that you can go and you can just literally um, go on a 15-minute walk and you'll get there. I've actually spent uh, a bit of time in uh, Ottawa, which is obviously very close to Toronto, and I loved the trails out there, which were also so close to the city. You know, your expeditions showcase your appetite to exploration in the context of sharing the stories of the people who live in that environment. You know, people are always very integral to your storytelling. You know, does this add the attraction to you of actually living in a city which has proximity to people as opposed to this idea of, you know, an adventurer or an explorer, you know, wanting to be remotely um, based? Honestly, I I don't think I could be completely um, separated from humans. A lot of the expeditions that I do are actually... You know, um, I feel like a lot of people go into it um, because they want to do an extreme sport or they want to break a record, you know, like, you know, be the first person to climb Mount Everest kind of thing. But for me, like, I, lo- I love those things too, but I just have to have the social uh, aspect to it because I think I just can't get away from people. I think that human beings are fascinating. No matter what we think or say, you know, um, at the end of the day, we've done some feats that are, uh, are incredible. I find that really fascinating and I definitely want to explore it through, um, you know, the expeditions and adventures that you've gone on because you're right. I think a lot of people in the adventurous space, you know, they're after, you know, and not to like stereotype or put people in categories, but you've got, you know, the the um, group of people who are very interested in a, a world record or a faster, fastest known time and so they're constrained by the parameters of the record or by which might include the pace that they need, they need to go to in order to complete it. And then you've got another group of adventurers who actually want isolation, that want to be detached from, you know, human beings, the the hustle and bustle of the city life and, and the work environment. And I feel like you, you kind of are talking about this third category, <laughs> which is it's the primary driver is humanity and the landscape in which it is around it. Exactly. I mean, it's who I am. It's who everybody is. We learn from each other, no matter how, you know, if, if you're someone who says, like, I don't want to be around people, just the fact that you're saying that means that you learned that from people, you know? So I think we can't get away from um, from other people and we can't get away from ourselves. Like We're all mirror objects of each other, right? And what I find really fascinating and what, like, I think led me to exploration in the first place was really going into these deep, um, uncharted territories. Like, and, and, you know, when I went kayaking across Lake Malawi, there were a lot of places I went to that, um, you know, some of the children have never seen foreigners before in their lives. And that was spectacular. So, you know, and, and also seeing all these different tribes moving around, uh, particularly in Africa and how they, 
um, the, the urban people are just so proud of, of having them around. And uh, so they accommodate them, you know, um, I think for most, most of the, uh, of the, of the countries that I've been to. Um, but you come to Canada, for instance, and uh, there isn't really that much of a celebration for the um, indigenous communities. And so I feel that I'm always connected to environmental injustices and how that, um, um, how that it carries over into social injustices. Yeah, and environmental injustices are typically brought on by mankind. Absolutely. <laughs> and so it's, it's a, a nice intersection that, you know, the vehicle of adventure for you gets, you get to talk about both. You get to talk about, you know, how humans um, impact the environment, the positive and the negative, and also what does the environment give to us. So it's a beautiful story and, I, you know, I follow, I've actually followed you for quite some time on your YouTube channel and I was following you when you did your crossing of Africa and, you know, it's an, it's an extraordinary feat of endurance but the storytelling of it is, for me, greater than the feat of endurance. And so I, I was so excited to have this conversation with you to go back to the beginning <laughs> because I think everybody's journey, um, you know, originates from who we are as a child. And yeah. I'd love to kind of hear that story of, you know, where you were born and you moved a lot as a kid um, yeah. in terms of changing your geographical landscape quite dramatically. Absolutely. Well, okay, so if you want me to start from the beginning, well, it was 8 a.m. Thursday night and I was born. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... Perfect. You're a morning baby. <laughs> Uh, but on a real note, I um, I think I became really passionate because of my upbringing. Uh, my stepfather was in the military, in German military. And, um, you know, I was born in the Caribbean, born in Turks and Caicos Islands. And um, I guess my parents, they, you know, they fell in love. And my stepfather said, hey, let's go to, let's live in Germany. And so my first uh, f- uh, two years of life was was in Germany, right? And um, all the way until the age of 11, when I moved back to the Caribbean. And, you know, before we went to kindergarten, we went to forest uh, school. So we just really understood the connection that we have with nature. And I believe that I was really lucky to have been raised in a very tiny village of, I think we were at 3,500 people. And we were lucky because it was a village that was really in touch with the simple life and with nature and um, just really enjoying uh, things that uh, bring you back to planet Earth. And so from that, imagine going to the Caribbean, being super excited about all this new different kind of environment, like with the beaches and the sun and the people, everything was completely opposite. It was like stark opposite. It could not be any more separate in in the way that culture could be you know the germans are very you know they're strict and just kind of um a very regimented uh, rule oriented kind of society and then you go to the caribbean and everyone's just laid back and you know it's just um you know come a little later you know type situation so it it took a while for me to learn how to merge the two together <laughs> to use to to my advantage because you can't go to the Caribbean thinking like a German and you can't go to Germany thinking like the Caribbean person. So you have to, you have to be able to, to, to mix and match when you need to, you need to have a malleable mind. 
And so because of this, I was able to explore um, the Caribbean the way that I would explore the forests in my backyard in Germany. And, um, you know, that, I think that's where my love of like different varying um, terrain really attracted me to, to exploration. And um, I used to watch this cartoon. And this is, I think, is quite important uh, message to put out as well, because I think a lot of people um, know what the movie of this cartoon is, but at the time it was really unpopular. Me and my brother would watch it uh, every week uh, when it came out. And I think when it was on YouTube, about 3,000 people had viewed it. So it was very unpopular and it was called The Black Panther. It was a Black Panther series. And, and this was way back in the day. And, you know, I was always like, holy, like, this is the only, um, you know, superhero that kind of looks like me. And I was very curious. And so I became in love with this character, uh, T'Challa, because, you know, he became king of Wakanda. And through um, the episodes, there was this one episode where in order for him to have, you know, uh, become the king of Wakanda after his father died, he went on a walkabout across Africa. And through this journey, he learned a lot about different cultures, tribes. He got robbed. He fell in love with a girl. And he saw all the most beautiful animals and terrain that he could have never imagined. And that helped him become a leader. And I feel like this is a very common um, African tale. Uh, not African tale, but an African um, uh, tradition where young kids, preteens, they go out in the bush and they go through like this uh, walkabout and they come back, whether it's a, a week, a month, or a few months later, with new lessons on how to hunt, how to survive in the open, in the bush, or the savannas, depending on wherever they live in, in Africa. And that's the only time that they become a man is if they survive that voyage. And I thought that that was really uh, an important point of the film of the of the show because it taught me something i said well why don't i i mean i thought about this many times for a long time actually why don't i go on this like crazy journey where i find meaning not in just myself but i want to find meaning in other people and other cultures and i want to see like you know what else is out there and so that's been like kind of gripping for i would say a ladder of <laughs> you know the last um couple of decades of my life and then finally, when I was 29, I said, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to take the leap. I have one year until I'm 30 and either I'm going to behave myself and have a proper job, or I'm going to take this massive risk and, um, explore the world the way that I feel genuinely how I was supposed to be. Mario, what an awesome introduction to uh, you. <laughs> um, thank you for sharing that. And there's just so many parts to it because you know, going back to the beginning, you know, how old were you when you moved to Germany? And I guess depending on that might be how, how did you experience the transition in culture to, to move from the Caribbean to Germany? Well, I moved when I was um, a year and a half old. You know, my brother, myself and my mom, we were actually the only um, black people in our entire village. So myself, I've never seen anyone that looks like me it was just my family so it was you know quite strange i would ask my parents you know what is what is what is wrong with us which is a terrible thing for a kid to be asking because when everyone else looks a certain way 
you know, you're, you're not fitting the, the average or, you know, the norm. But I was incredibly lucky, me and my brother, because we, we lived in a uh, beautiful small town called Stuttgart. And um, it's a very quaint little uh, town, uh, village. And, you know, there people were incredibly kind to me. People were very uh, caring and, you know, we, we went into a lot of trouble, you know, I was, I was definitely the troubled kid who did a bunch of mischievous, mischievous things, but I think that's just the excitement of adventure in me. So I was never really out of place until ironically, I moved back to the Caribbean because again, like this is not where I was raised, right? So when I moved to the Caribbean at the age of 11, I had to essentially unlearn the things that I learned in Germany in terms of how to behave in society and um, quickly learn how to behave in a completely different society that uh, essentially everything is the opposite. So it was really hard actually to move to the Caribbean because you're thinking like a German in a place where now you're also again a complete stranger because now you kind of look like everybody, but you're not behaving like, like anyone. So I feel like that could have a harder turn than the looking part because the looking part, you can at least um, be treasured for that in a sense. But if you're acting uh, completely different, then I feel like kids are very um, quick to, 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 to pick that up, point out, point fingers at you and, um, and bully you. In, in fact, you know, your experiences sound that, you know, it wasn't how you looked that made you feel, isolated and different it's how you felt on the inside and and therefore what affected your behavior do you think the discipline and the structure that you you know learned through your time in Germany and obviously through schooling was something that helped you kind of excel in the track and field space not necessarily in Germany in fact in Germany I never really was interested in sports Um, I was actually just more interested in uh, in wildlife and and uh, gardening and all that kind of stuff, you know, and uh, as well as art. So I only, so I, I believe when I got into track and field, it started it started off innocently by me, you know, um, asking, well, what is this thing that you guys are doing where you're racing against each other, like just being so mundane? And one day my friend, uh, he was my best friend at the time, he said, um, you know, you should try it. Just stay in line and, you know, go from point A to point B as, as fast as you can. And the winner uh, essentially gets a medal. And so I tried it for the first time and I won uh, my school championship. And then that just kind of led to the next thing, you know. I mean, I'm skipping ahead of you know, a lot of uh, years and dedication of work, but that's kind of how it seemed like. It's, uh, you know, I tried it once and then flash forward into uh, competing uh, internationally for Turks and Caicos Islands. In fact, even back in um, what was it, Carifta Games is where they breed all those like, you know, sprinter world record holders. We would, we would all be amongst each other, you know, like um, Donovan Bailey, he's from uh, Jamaica and uh, Ben Johnson, sprinter, also from Jamaica. You have Usain Bolt. Uh, there's a couple of few other people from the Turks and uh, so from the Caribbean, and Turks and Caicos only has thirty five thousand people. Yet, you know, five people there are are, are uh, competing in the Olympics, 
and are ranked at, well at one point top 20 in the world. So um, that put me at a good odds. <laughs> what is it about you know growing up in the Caribbean that has cultivated so many high performing like athletes, particularly in the sprinting domain? I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Um, it's a, I think primarily the if you look at East Africans, they they are more like you know. Um, mountainous, uh, like the Kenyan runners, uh, some of the Moroccan runners, which is in, in uh, West Africa or Northern Africa. And then you have the Ethiopians who live in um, on like Simeon Mountains, which is, you know, averaging two to 3,000 meters above the ground. And so they're like more used, they're like smaller framed bodies. And then you have West Africans who uh, most of the Caribbean people are from due to the West African slave trade. And not only that, but a lot of those people had to survive the voyage of crossing the Atlantic Ocean in very horrific conditions. And so the strongest of the strongest had to survive the boat trips. And then the strongest of the strongest had to survive the hardship of being slaves in the field, right? And so um, what happened then was the breeding of a particular kind of humans, the way that you would essentially, I guess, breed pit bulls, you know? And so we ended up just breeding pit bulls who can, or, or great dames, actually. Is it the great, greyhound, sorry. It's the greyhound. Yeah, it's essentially like that. And I was uh, one of those people because my family, um, the lineage is not, it's only a few generations away from uh, when they were slaves in the salt plantations, right? Um, so that's one com- that's one thing. And then the second thing is, you know, in the Caribbean, the spirit is that, yes, we're small, but we believe that we're mighty. So if you ever talk to anyone from the Caribbean, we're very confident individuals. And, we, you know, we have this, like, this confidence that some people might think are uh, grandeur. But um, it's just, it's it's not confidence out of nowhere. It's because we understand that, you know, we're all human, we're all people, and um, we're doing the best that we can. Um and, and then, of course, you have the food and the culture, the music. It's, it's a lot of, I feel like it's the combination of all those things that, that um, yeah, that aspire people to, to compete in, 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 at that level of, tra- of sports. Do you feel that blend of, you know, spending the first decade of your life in Germany where you got to explore adventure and then going back to the Caribbean, you know, for the next six years, you got this hybrid of appreciation for adventure and appreciation of high-performance athleticism, which has moulded both of your interests to see, I guess, sport in a, a quite a holistic way? Yeah, you definitely, uh, you nailed it. And I, I was very conscious of how I wanted to, you know, create a life of which I appreciated and um, I didn't want to regret, you know, on my deathbed. And it needed to have this high perform, the high physical performance aspect to it, but it also needed to have the other two, which was to to explore new terrains, to see environments, and then the third one, of course, which to me is very important, is the people aspect of it, um, to see you know who we are, where we come from, and I think uh, the combination of all those things really all speak for each other. Really, um, the t- certain kinds of people are molded because of the environment, because of the terrain, you know. So I believe everything is uh, interconnected, and I think that's important for us to to keep focus on, I think, as explorers, especially explorers of the future. 
Yeah, it's a combination of that nature-nurture debate, Mm. where we're from, what we're around, surrounded, you know, who we choose to be as well. You you kind of um, discussed that when you moved back to the Caribbean, like that transition was probably the harder one. I mean, you're older, you're at a very impressionable age. What were some of the, you know, do you remember specifically some of the challenges you faced? Just being slightly different in personality. And how children used to pick on me because of that, me and my brother actually, which um, actually turned out to be beneficial for us because then we became great fighters because we had to constantly, every day was, uh, you know, we're defending ourselves or defending each other. And um, I think that led us to um, have a certain distaste toward uh, the people that, you know, lived in the, in on the island, you know, and that was quite sad because we wanted to, you know, play like we were just kids. We just wanted to play um, with everyone. You want to belong. Yeah, absolutely. And that was the main thing is that we wanted to belong. But uh, some people, when they see something that they're not familiar with or, you know, don't know about, then they see that as a threat or um, can be jealous or all these different things. So um, that wasn't really allowed until I started um, playing sports. You know, I, I, I played rugby, um, played football, um, uh, sorry, basketball and track and field, of course. So I did all those different things. And then that's when things started to change. You know, that's the, I think that's the blessing of sport, that it can break down barriers of difference. But then it's also disappointing that you need sport to do that. <laughs> yeah. So... It's like this double-edged sword, you know. It's so great that you had your sporting talent to default on. If you didn't have capabilities in sport, what do you think you would have done to try to find that sense of connection and belonging? Which I know is hypothetical, but I'm intrigued by it. Yeah, I would have been an artist because when I, um, before I even played sports, I was always um, painting and drawing. You know, I I was self-taught because my parents uh, once they bought me a um, a book of some of the top artists in the world. And uh, I think it was my favorite book at the time. And what I started doing was uh, I started copying them uh, using acrylic paints. And I just kept doing it over and over. So I'm like, you know, recreating Picasso's art and um, uh, Vincent Van Gogh and all those, you know, um, amazing people. And so I just kept doing this over and over until I was like, okay, cool. I think I'm confident to do my own thing and uh when i would go to school i would um you know the girls would actually ask me to to draw them and so that got me really, <laughs> you know so that was like okay this this works this works we can we can work with this and uh because of that i started winning art competitions and things like that so i think if it wasn't for, if, if if sports wasn't in the um in the picture then i would have definitely probably gone in the direction of art do you still do art um, today as a form of, you know, release and as, some, and as something different than adventure? Uh, you know what? I wish I did more of that. Uh, oh, by the way, apologize. But if you hear fireworks, it is Canada Day. So, oh, it is yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> no, Happy anyway. Canada Day. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. And it's 9.30 p.m. right now. So um, I think in the next 30 minutes, it's going to get pretty wild. Just FYI. Don't worry. Can, uh, that might be my way of feeling like I'm traveling because I'm like, <laughs> living the Canadian experience via this podcast. 
I love it. It's beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love um, speaking to people from around the world. I think it's, it's exciting times to be able to connect like this. Yeah, we're learning new skills. We're learning that we're learning to invest more in relationships with people all around the world and trying to make travel not be the only mechanism to feel connected geographically with people on the other side of the world. Exactly. Uh, but sorry, the question that you asked earlier, I, I missed that one. Um, well, you, you actually gave a great example. You said you would have used art, but you know, you spoke about the superhero, um, the Black Panther, who you know you, you, I guess, felt connected to. And do you think it was an equal balance of you were connected to the Black Panther because you felt like you looked like him, but also because of what he did with the walking and adventuring? Like, which one was it more? To be honest, it wasn't even because I looked like him um, or he looked like me. It it was because of how genuine it was. It felt like it was a genuine um, superhero that really wanted to help the people. And, you know, he was in charge of an entire um, nation. And I think most superheroes are not um, in charge of an entire nation. They, they usually go into these battles and what they do is the opposite of protect an entire nation. You know, they, if you look at like Thor and all those guys, they like ruin entire cities with their fight scenes. But I felt like with the Black Panther, you know, he always felt a duty to protect his community. And also there was a strong push for females to have powerful roles as engineers and also leaders. You know, it was a kind of matriarchal society where his mother is the one who who actually kind of makes all the decisions, you know what I mean? And his sister is like the brainiac. And so it's not that I was consciously thinking about that when I was younger, but it was definitely something that um, spoke to me naturally. What was the role that your mom had in your family unit? I would say that at the beginning, it was um, my father who took charge because, you know, he was this German guy that came in and, you know, uh, swooped us away from uh, the Caribbean and then uh, brought us to, to, uh, sorry, to Germany. And so, of course, we, we are um, under his uh, kind of, you know, uh, what would you say that word is, uh, will or something like that. So, yeah, so he was, you know, he was the one pulling all the strings and, you know, we were learning, like, like about, not me because we were kids, but my mother, uh, she was definitely learning about uh, different cultures for the first time of her life, you know. And she was quite young when she had us. I believe she was 15 years old when she um, had me. So she was still quite a young person. She was 17 years old when, when we moved to uh, Germany. So you can imagine such a young age. Um, it's incredible. Yeah. Incredible, right? And it um, is it was is that is that typical in the Caribbean that um women will get married younger and then have children at an early age? It is, yeah. It's a very um uh I would say religious also. It's a very religious um island as well. So they believe in having uh family children early on in life, you know. So that's definitely something that's uh, that's important in, in Turks and Caicos Island. But yeah, but then I think what happened was we moved back to the Caribbean and, you know, my mom had a different sense about what she wanted to do. So um, so she separated with my stepdad and 
you know, uh, we were left essentially with nothing. So we were definitely living below poverty. And that's why we moved to Canada, because we decided that we wanted a different kind of life that the Caribbean couldn't really uh, support with, which was education for my brother and myself. And so, you know, as a single mother, she, she pushed that. And I think her journey as a single mother had actually um, strengthened her over time more and more. And you could see um, her getting stronger and stronger. And now she's like at this invincible level where she owns like a whole bunch of businesses and, you know, she runs everyone on the island. Like she moved back to the Caribbean and um, in Turks and Caicos Island. And now she runs these uh, super successful businesses that are, you know, ranked number one and number two in, in Turks and Caicos. So, yeah, she's dope. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, I talk about we all evolve as humans and through the through different adversities, we sometimes, our evolution gets propelled even further because we, we hit a... a we hit the surface, we hit, hit rock bottom and we have a choice to do something different or to kind of fall backwards. And clearly your mum chose to kind of go forward and it would have been a big jump for her to take you guys to Canada on her own, you know, get employment um, and navigate an entirely new type of culture as well. 100%. And um, I think I definitely agree with you when you say um, you, you have a choice and that's essentially all life is, you know, I feel, you know, um, I, you know, believe in the, the quantum theory that all universes and parallel universes all exist already. And, you know, all choices are already laid out for you. So you could even see as like a godly thing and you just choose, you know, which direction you want to take whatever direction that is that you take is the one that you're going to experience. Spot on. Well, then let's talk about the choice of, you know, of adventure because you started on a, a series of, I, I don't even want to say smaller, but comparatively smaller to crossing Africa. So I started the Toronto to Montreal hike, which was uh, 550 or 540 kilometers, something like that. And uh, it took me 14 days. And the reason I did that one was because I wanted to train for Africa and I was also looking to hopefully garner some sponsors and some support, um, you know, to, to, to help fund the, the expedition crossing Africa, but also mainly is to see if I can do it. You know, I've never hiked before in my life before that. I've never done any of these um, backpacking trips or anything. So it was, to me, it was, it was a, a whole new experience that I had to learn from. I do love that you decided to, to cross Africa before you had really done any hiking on a serious level or backpacking. So I have to ask, I mean, that journey across Africa, it was how, how many kilometres was it? Uh, Africa was 12,000 kilometres. <laughs> okay, so what makes someone who, you know, is, is fit, obviously incredibly fit, but what, what made you feel that that was something possible for you? What yeah, it's funny that you know I always laugh at this one because, um, <laughs> because I it's funny because I always say that yeah it's been done before or someone has slightly done it before so I'm like okay so it's possible then right and people say no no Mario it's not quite like that that's not how things work in life um, but 
that's how it worked for you. So yeah, exactly. we're all different. We're all wired to to look at other people's experiences differently. Some people look at what someone else does and goes, "I still, you did it, but that's so removed from me." So. Mm-hmm. I might be inspired by you, but I don't think that's possible. Right. And it sounds like you looked that humankind has shown me the way that this is a potential for anybody. A hundred percent. And I, that's what it's all about, really. And it goes back to that that time when um, I, I explained to you when my parents gave me um, these, this art book that I learned um, about all these like great artists. And I just started copying them until I, I became my own artist and I started creating my own style. And so that's essentially everything really is, you know, as, as human beings, we're sponges. And um, so it's all possible. Even if someone hasn't done a particular expedition before, you can also just, you know, copy bits and pieces of individuals who've done uh, smaller aspects of the expedition that you're about to start. So like even like kayaking across the Atlantic Ocean, um, which is a project that I want to do in 2022. Uh, you know, there was, I think, one guy who had done it kayaking and then everyone else kind of rode it and, like, you know, um, uh, backpedal rowing. And some people have used teams. But this one crazy guy has done it literally kayaking by himself. And to me, that's that's incredibly inspiring. And I'm like, think, and, you know, a lot of people think, like, wow, that's crazy. I could never do that. But my mind literally doesn't do that. My mind says, I'm a human being. That person is a human being. Everyone else is human. Like, we could do the same thing. It's all good. You need to deconstruct this project for me because there's going to be a lot of people here going, what did Crossing Africa look like in theory? And then what did it actually feel like in practice? And how about we start with the the theory and the concept of Crossing Africa? So the theory for me crossing Africa was actually not far removed from the reality. In fact, the reality was a lot more exciting than the theory or even my dreams. Because when I first started off, I was afraid of, you know, the things that people had told me. I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily afraid. I was, um, I was like concerned, you know, because a lot of um, very smart individual people would come up and they say, oh, watch out for, you know, watch out for tigers and stuff like that, which, you know, they're not in Africa. But um, at that time, I wasn't quite sure. So, you know, you have to look at the fact that most people are just, um, they operate uh, on fear first before anything else. And that's why, like, you know, the news like breaking news is very popular and, and soap operas on TV because people relate to that better, you know, instinct to, in, instinctually they will respond to that um, stronger than if they were to, um, you know, hear that everything is going to be fine. You've obviously got this idea. You've started to share it with, you know, the people that you meet. You're trying to gather sponsors, um, which, you know, I know is a pretty challenging endeavour. As you started to research the logistics and the details of Africa, obviously understanding tigers aren't going to be there. What were some of the continued real um, challenges that were that you were facing and how did you choose to mitigate a couple of them in the lead up? Absolutely. The, I, I would say the first challenge for me was the sociability, the sociability part of it, which was to um, knock door to door and ask people if I can sleep in their homes. Um, I didn't really... Um, I didn't really gather as much funding for the trip as I 
had hoped, but I decided that I'm, I need to make this happen regardless. So I went into um, crossing Africa when I arrived in, in South Africa with very little money. And um, I don't think I got a single sponsor. So there was uh, zero sponsors, but I did have some uh, help from uh, my mother and um, a few people from GoFundMe. So that, you know, in a way that helped uh, enough, but it wasn't enough for me to actually um, uh, sustain myself, just purely with funding. So I needed the help of the people. Do you think if you had more funding, mm-hmm. you would have done the project differently? 100%, yeah. I, if, if I were to have, I think, a bigger uh, budget for this expedition, I may not have met these incredible individuals you know, that I, I had met while crossing Africa. Um, what I learned from crossing Africa was that these people are so incredibly hospitable that they understood the value of life more than the 95% of the people that I knew in, in um, you know, back home in Canada and in Turks and Caicos. They appreciated every moment and, you know, they just, they just loved the, 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 <laughs> the moment of being alive there and meeting a new stranger. So my daily struggles really, especially at the beginning, was learning how to engage with people, but completely, it's always changing, you know, because you're always going from um, from one uh, a village to another uh, city, town, country. And, and, you know, I probably encountered over 100 different tribes. And so that was really challenging to just to learn the language. Uh, every single day you had to, like, practice a new language and so that was really intense. But I would say the biggest challenge really was authority, was the uh, the thugs, the police, some of the military. I'm not saying all of them were bad. It's just, in fact, most of them were really nice and really kind. But, you know, um, if given uh, an opportunity in a poor country, when you have some power where you can abuse it, you know, that gives people the opportunity to use that probably more often than, if you lived in Canada and you're a police officer, you might not abuse that power as much because there is no reason for you to. And so you see it more often in, uh, in, those, uh, in those environments, unfortunately. I know you had quite a bit of trouble in Malawi and like, let's definitely go through that in a moment. But when you were kind of standing at the base, like I guess the bottom of Africa in South Africa, you've got a 15 to 25 kilogram pack based on how much food you needed, based on, you know, the availability of food sources along the way. Did you have a clear route of which you wanted to take or was there flexibility? There was always flexibility. I, I always gave myself two options, uh, two or three options, in case something went wrong. Um, I always wanted to have two or three different ways to get out of any situation. So that was... Uh, that was like one of my rules. I had many rules, so that was definitely one of my strong rules, which was to have you know multiple exit routes um, or alternative uh, routes. And I would sometimes go with the flow. I would uh, ask locals, you know, what what is the best way to go. I remember I had um, an incident in um, in Mozambique where um, uh, I encountered some rebel tribes. And we were shot at by them, uh, by guerrilla uh, rebels. 
in northern Sudan. And, you know, the villagers had told me, like, do not go there. There is a conflict happening at the moment. And, you know, regardless, I went because I I thought, okay, well, it's probably overrated. I'm going to go check it out. And it's the fastest route. So that was the one time I probably made a bad um, uh, route decision. Yeah, it's hard though. It's hard to, um, obviously the locals know so much more, but they're not always going to reveal the correct information. You know, most of the times they will, but sometimes, you know, you want to follow your gut and sometimes your gut can just not be right. (laughs) Um, Particularly when you're tired, you you know, physically and mentally, you might not be getting great sleep depending on where you're able to sleep each night time. So like you had a lot of duress going through in your decision-making process and it's not like you, you mean to make this clear, you did this support, you did this solo. There was not like a logistics company helping you. You didn't have a car following you. You were literally out on your own and making every decision in every single moment. And I, I want to give you so much praise and credit for that because that takes a lot of bravery um, to go into an uncharted territory, into a place that you do not know uh, and you don't have a safety net to lean on. Um so you went through South Africa and you kind of went up through the more west side of South Africa and then you head into Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia and Mozambique and then Tanzania uh, kind of before going up to the northern part of the country. Is, is that correct, your route? So that was the original route actually and what ended up happening was I, went, I did South Africa, Mozambique, Malawi, Tanzania, uh, Kenya, Ethiopia, Sudan, and then Egypt. I was just looking at the total wrong map, and I do love that your initial route was a lot. <laughs> Very- Wasn't your initial route going to be more like 8,000 Ks, and then you ended up doing 12,000? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, uh, <laughs> you know, it's really funny. I did not keep track of how many kilometers I was walking. I only I only found that out because a magazine um, actually did the calculation for me, and I was like, wow, I, I walked pretty far. <laughs> You not only walked far, but I just love it how most people will try and find ways of cutting the distance whilst they're out there, and you actually added distance whilst you're out there. (laughs) I wanted to stay close to water. I was like, you know, I cannot be in the desert. I can't be out there. So I wanted to follow the the coast, and in Malawi, I wanted to follow the the river from Mozambique all the way to Malawi and then follow Lake Malawi all the way to Tanzania. Yeah, is that because you just couldn't be sure of the water access that you would have, and you couldn't carry enough water? Oh no, I just, I just love, I just love being near the water. That was like my prime reason, really. Yeah, it's two years of your life. You do it how you want. Um, tell me a bit more about um, that situation that happened um, with with the rebels and the shooting. Like, can you kind of describe it a little bit more of how you've got yourself in that situation and how did you get out of it? Yeah, so getting near, so there's a, a border called Save Border, which is um, a massive river that splits the uh, southern bit and northern bit of, of Mozambique in half. And there is Renamo forces in the north, and he essentially is this political figurehead um, who believes that he should have been the, the president of, um, of Mozambique. But of course, the government body chose a different president, and so they are constantly at war or conflict with each other. And uh, Renamo in the north is where all the resources are, the natural resources, right? 
And in the South is where the banks and the government are. So the money's in the South, the resources are in the North, um, and you know nobody could really make a, a, a proper deal. So there's this constant conflict going on. And as I got close to the border, the, uh, the military, which is the government side, had spotted me and I was pretty much forced into the back of a convoy truck. So we had to ride 120, uh, 160 kilometers through this, uh, through this, I would say, nightmare of a dream. So it was like a fantasy nightmare fusion because, you know, I, I for the first time I'm in the back of a truck. So I'm like, whoa, this is, this is crazy. And I'm moving. And, you know, I felt like this is the one time this is probably allowed. <laughs> and yeah, there was nothing but this beautiful palm trees on the side of the road. The road was perfectly slick black during dawn and the sun was just like this huge orange beautiful um uh sunset and you could see the palm trees the the beautiful buildings and stuff like that but what was really um you know and it was actually very eerie because there was this dead silence there were um eight soldiers with me six in the back and two in the front and uh, it was a special military convoy truck you know and they were all carrying, you know, military grade uh, weaponry. And while all of this was happening, you know, you could see cars that were uh, bombed and shot at on the side of the road. So there, you know, there would be all these cars and these trucks that were on fire on the side of the road while you're seeing all of this beauty. And some of the villages were even being burnt down. So because what would happen is any of Renamo forces, if they come from a certain village, the military would go there and just burn down the entire village. So it was very uh, bizarre to see and witness that because, you know, I've never been in a, in a war zone before. I've never experienced it. So you can imagine how crazy that was. So while we were riding 100 miles per hour down this beautiful road, we hear these, um, these gunshots um, um, toward us and we could hear and I remember the AK-47 is just going off and we ended up uh, just stopping the truck and you could hear the music still going on in the background, you know, of this truck. And so we, they all jumped out. I'm staying in the back of the truck. They're shooting back and forth. And um, I think that was one of the scariest moments I've, I've ever had, like, because I'm just thinking to myself, you know, I'm just a Toronto guy who is uh, now being shot at by Renamo <laughs> rebel forces in the bush. Oh, ter- it's terrifying. I mean, did you do research in the lead up to Africa to try or the expedition to kind of get a, a lay of the land in terms of um, political unrest, you know, um, you know, to kind of prepare yourself for those elements of the project? Yeah, you know what? Um, I would probably recommend that if you are a perfectionist to not walk across Africa you would, uh, <laughs> those people will fail immediately. And I'll tell you why. Because things change overnight. <laughs> there was no, um, you know, civil unrest happening. You know, when I researched what's happening in Mozambique, it happened a few weeks before I arrived. And obviously I'm not really catching up with all the news because I'm in the middle yeah. of my expedition. And all of a sudden, you know, you're just like, you've been walking for three weeks now in Mozambique and you're one day 
before the the Save border and people tell you like, no, you shouldn't go there, it's dangerous. And you're used to people being naysayers. Like I think that the most common thing that happened to me, what I realized with people is most people are naysayers. Most people are fearful. And, um, you know, I'm like, you know, well, you could easily die just by crossing the road. And I know that's a gimmick thing to say, but um, I feel like I'm safer doing these things because I know what I'm doing. You don't know what you're doing. And so that's why it seems dangerous to you. You know, um, and I, I'm sure that you also um, probably have those experiences where people say, well, how did you do that? It's because you put a lot of work into, you did a lot of research into you know, figuring out how not to die and how to survive. Yeah, I, I say like you actually, I, my, my strategy with expeditions is I do a lot of work to get to the start line and that's not just obviously, so I know where I'm going, but also to build the confidence that I know enough. But the reality is like the plan never works out when you're in a country that's not familiar to you, where there's just daily changes, like huge diversity of culture. And it's what keeps you moving forward is just your ability to be in the moment going, what's the next best plan now? Like what's the next best plan now? And just continually having that mindset. And you have a a rare mindset and, you know, I mean, you know, if you talk to, and, and this is something I really would, I love to share with people because I think that, you know, we would be uh, better off if people weren't as fearful of each other and what's going on around them. I think that learning how to intuitively just research what you need to know in order to accomplish it um, should be a privilege we, we all have in a sense. Well, you, you spoke about in, a, in an article that I read that, you know, the experience that you had in Mozambique and then the experience that you had in Malawi, which I want to talk about next, um, both of them stopped you from, you had, but prior to those experiences, you were starting to lose your fear. Can you kind of talk to me about that concept? By the time I made it around um, near the end of Malawi, I had probably almost died about, I, can, I can't even count the amount of times, like nearly drowning in rivers, uh, river crossings. Um, nearly going through, um, you know, um, hypothermia in Mozambique when it was uh, the monsoon season. A lot of people forget that you can also, you know, you could freeze, not freeze to death, but you can have hypothermia in uh, hot climate countries because of the uh, tropical storms and things like that. Uh, or having malaria, cerebral malaria in Malawi, which nearly took my life. Um, had I waited one more day, I would have not been, uh, I, would, I would not be here. And I was just lucky to have people that were there at the right time, at the right place, who saved my life. Um, or being out in Lake Malawi and the kayak was too far out and there was a, um, a hull that had um, uh, somehow the water had breached in. And so it started sinking and I was miles and miles out in, in the lake. By the way, the second largest, uh, deepest lake in the world. So if you're going under, you're really going down under, not to take your words away, you know, in Australia, but you're really going down under. And so I was, you know, you have that fear. And I remember feeling fear constantly at one point where it was just every day was I could die if I make one wrong move. And it started to become exhausting. And uh, it was getting so exhausting at one point that I feel like, my level of fear had completely gone away. And um, that's when I know it was dangerous because 
I no longer felt scared. And when you don't feel scared, then you know you don't make the the best decisions sometimes because you could take you could be taking a risk that you don't necessarily need to be uh, making. Like when I was riding like six meter waves in uh, Lake Malawi, I should have taken shelter, but instead I decided to go out and have like a really cool surfing time on the waves. Which, by the way, I don't regret. You know, part of your journey, which I know that you initially planned to walk, you, you then decided to get in a, in a kayak in Malawi. What was the reason for that decision? I wanted to give my legs a break and I wanted to see what it was like to just kayak. The original um, expedition name was actually to walk and sail across Africa. And, you know, I thought uh, sailing is too easy. So I needed to empower <laughs> propulsion. <laughs> and that sailing is easy, by the way. It's very complicated and sophisticated. You need a lot of um, years to, to practice that. But I would say that kayaking, you know, as we mentioned before, I wanted to challenge myself physically. I wanted to see, you know, I wanted to push my ultimate limits. And also the lake was so beautiful. I thought to myself, why not? you know, take this chance to, to explore a part of the lake that most people who go to Malawi, which is quite rare, um, have never even seen those particular parts of, of that country. And it allowed me to see some really spectacular um, things. How hard was it? I mean, I know that you're not a, you weren't a kayaker before this. So, you know, you obviously had to access a kayak. You needed to teach yourself the basics and then you needed to including transporting your gear and then you had to get off and still find shelter at night time like how does that actually play out <laughs> so i know most people probably planned this way ahead of time they probably practice <laughs> i've never kayaked before in my life and i decided to um i was like yeah it can't be that bad like people kayak so why not um you know and uh, <laughs> so i decided yeah i'm just gonna i'm just gonna do this and I was looking for a kayak for about two weeks. I remember in a place called Cape, Mc, Cape McClear, which is a beautiful part of the most southern part of, um, of uh, Lake Malawi or Lake Nyasa. And so I spent about, uh, sorry, a week and a half there. And, you know, I'm just out there, you know, knock, uh, knocking on the, the doors of, of these kayak businesses. And I'm asking them, like, hey, can I borrow your kayak? And every single one of them has shot me down and basically said that, yeah, we're not giving the kayak to you because we don't want to uh, attach ourselves to someone who's going to die out in the lake. So everyone kept saying, this is the most dangerous lake. You shouldn't do it. I don't think I had one single person except for this one crazy Italian guy who told me, like, yeah, this is a great idea. Everyone else was saying, this is crazy. You're nuts. You shouldn't do it. But then I looked at the water and I thought to myself, yeah, cool. And I asked the locals, you know, the, the, the people who really know the water. And um, that was actually an even worse idea because they, uh, they're even more afraid of the water. So, uh, yeah. so I just had to do like some, some deep research, which I began. And I started looking at, um, you know, what are the dangers of the lake and, and all that kind of stuff. And um, is it survivable? That's all I needed to know. Is it survivable? And um, I learned that it was. So in order to kayak from place to place, what I did was I would, there were actually times where I would actually land on little tiny islands 
And these islands were tiny, like we're talking about the size of a house. So I would just pitch my kayak there and um, have the best time of my life. I would have, you know, my, my sardines or whatever, or fishing. And I would just, yeah, I would just enjoy life. Beautiful sunsets, you know, after like a 14-hour kayak ride. The way that I motivated myself kayaking was I turned it, I gamified it. So I turned it into a game. So, you know, like how many levels can I go up? And I felt like, okay, um, if I could do 50 kilometers today, I'd, be, I'd, I'd feel really good. And then I could like eat this particular meal and do that. So I, I did a lot of reward um, tactics to keep me going. You um, met, as you said before, an Italian man called Francesco, and he um, would walk alongside the shore for part of your journey whilst you were kayaking in in Lake Malawi. Um, How did that relationship come about and how long was he actually kind of a part of your journey for? He was actually a part of my journey for quite a long time. Um, He was actually a film producer for National Geographic in, um, in England although he's an uh, Italian living in, uh, in London. And we met in Mozambique, and he was this crazy, cool, you can imagine, cool Italian guy with a big beard and, like, deep eyes, and he always smoked a cigarette, and, you know, he would always lean back on his chair and be like, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm walking across Africa. And then he would just keep smoking and stare at you and not say a single word, and then he's like, I will join you. <laughs> <laughs> so he was this really like super cool James Dean kind of character and um, you know I, I forgot about him for about two weeks because I was walking ahead and um, he had already taken the bus and went to this place called uh, Tofu which is like the most beautiful insane hip place I've ever been in my life actually it's like a, it's a secret that I think um, not too many people know about Anyway, so he was there for about two weeks while I was walking. And, um, you know, we, we finally caught up again. And I'm like, oh, yeah, hey, you're that guy from uh, the, the, the hostel back in Maputo where we met. And uh, you said that you were interested in joining me, but you just disappeared. And he's like, yeah, it was, you know, I was chasing someone down, but she's not into me and, you know, life sucks kind of thing. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? Let's give you an adventure. So, um you know, there's some like private parts of the story that I probably can't go into details here. Um, but he had, <laughs> the tales from the trails. Yeah, exactly. Right. So let's just say he had a great time. We had some great fun in Tofu. We stayed there for about um, a few weeks. And um, so he joined me across Mozambique for about a week. And then from there, um, he split up, went to um, Zambia and all those other countries. And then he met me again in Malawi where he wanted to continue walking and he decided to to walk from the bottom of uh, Lake Malawi to the top. And he actually did, <laughs> which uh, I'm incredibly impressed with, you know, so he might be the first Italian guy to have ever done that. <laughs> did he, um, if he's a um, filmmaker, did he take some footage of you or at least some photography? I mean, he did his best he, that we, you know, we weren't really focused on doing a lot of filming. It was mostly like dehydration and how are we going to survive and, you know, like like dealing with massive monsoon seasons. So, I, I, you know, there was a lot of uh, survival compared to uh, filming. But 
um, he did he did do a lot of he did teach me a lot about how to do mobile filming like you know like how to make sure that you create like cinematic views and that's how I was able to get like thousands of like really beautiful videos from the footage of crossing Africa which I haven't released yet and um, you know just because in hopes of making uh, you know a beautiful documentary that people could um, could share. Oh, people would love to see it. I mean, you know, there's not many people in the world who have done what you've done and, you know, it's the things that you didn't plan along the way that actually just add such, you know, character and flavour to that story. I mean, meeting an Italian guy and he's walking on the side of, you know, the lake as you're kayaking along it. I know Lake Malawi has crocodiles. Did you see a lot of them? I didn't see a lot of Actually, I, it's funny. I saw more crocodiles in South Africa than I did in Malawi. Okay. Um, I saw a few and, you know, I'm on my kayak and uh, I, it's really like just being natural about it, like understanding threats, understanding people. It's, it's, it's almost like understanding animals, you know. Animals have, you have to give them respect and if, if you give them respect, it's not that they're giving giving you respect back. What I mean is like respect their boundaries, respect their, their habitat and, um, and so I always did that, except for uh, you know a couple of times when I didn't have a choice. I needed to sleep where the uh, the hippos were, for instance. Uh, that was that was a crazy experience. But I wanted to lead on with uh, Francesco actually because he saved my life um, uh, in, in in one occasion where you know he took me out of jail when I was jailed in uh, halfway up Malawi. This the the chief of a particular village. He didn't believe me. Um, he didn't believe who I was. At least that's what he said. But I think he was looking for a bribery or something like that. But out of all the chiefs, he was the worst one. <laughs> so, you know, um, I can assure you that um, all the chiefs along Lake Malawi in Malawi are actually pretty good, except for this one guy. Um, and he ended up calling the cops on me and the cops were in on it. And so they jailed me for a couple of nights and I'm in jail and this guy, uh, Francesco, he, he finally arrives because he was always a few days behind. Right. So he finally arrives yeah. and says, um, and there was a guy and the whole village, everyone knows about this. You know, I became like a, this big story. It was like drama for them. So Francesco finally comes to the police station and he says, uh, Oh, you have my friend. You must free him. And, you know, after I was pleading for days and days, they finally just freed me because of Francesco. And, you know, it's because he was a white male. Um, and because if you're white, then, you know, because of our, um, because of the colonization of Africa, it's, it's looked upon as a prestigious thing. So because he said it, um, it was like the word. But when I said it, they didn't believe me the whole time. So it was really sad to, to witness that, actually. I was really, um, I was angry at first, and then I was really, like, sad for the people. Mara, you were in jail for three days or three nights. What is going through your mind? Like, did you, I mean, you didn't have certainty that Francesco would come there. What are you thinking? I felt like... If I spent more than five days, I would probably start freaking out. But I gave myself like a few days of not freaking out. 
Um, I knew that Francesco was always behind a bit, so I didn't know when it was, but I felt like um, if it's more than three days, I would probably start panicking a little bit. But I was quite calm about it. You know, I was like, oh, this is a cool rest. <laughs> um, for kayaking, <laughs> like, kayaking isn't really my thing anyway, so this is cool. And, um, you know, with the kayaking too, like you can't really, um, you can't really move forward ahead or anything like that too. You have to ca carry that thing everywhere you go. Um, so it was good that, you know, it had a shelter for a bit, but what was going through my mind was really like, just, I was in a meditative state. Like there was this, I remember there being like this tiny little hole. Um, and that was the only window really. And there was always that bird that came through. And I would always just like kind of stare at, you know, what the bird was doing and all that kind of stuff. But also there were other people, other inmates in, inside. And um, I remember there was this young boy and um, I'm like wondering, like, what is the kid doing in here? Um, and there were all these other guys and it just looked so bad because they just looked so um, malnutritioned and it was just like really out of shape. But they were so sweet. They were like the most beautiful human beings you could ever meet because... I didn't have any food, I didn't have water, but they always supplied that for me. So they would give me, you know, some of the, the, the chips, the chips that they had and the, and you know, so they would give me like half a chip bag, they would give me water. And um, I, during this whole um, uh, occasion, I was actually handcuffed as well. So I was shackled handcuffed while the other- The three whole days. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. My, my uh, hands started going purple and blue. Uh, even the inmates were pleading for me, although we didn't speak the same language. You know, I'm trying to, they're trying to communicate to the police officers. They're saying, hey, listen, this guy's hand is about to uh, rot off. Uh, you need to do that. agonizing pain. Uh, so I didn't sleep at all. I was a big mess, I think, by the, by the end of it. And I think they did that as a form of torture, which was horrible because they knew that the, the shackles were too tight. Um, and they knew I couldn't sleep because you can't really put your elbows or anything together, right? Because you're constantly shackled, so your arms are, are stuck in a certain position. Ooh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would have been so composed during an experience like that. I know there's nothing else you can do, and you're, I, I can tell that you're stoic, but not any, not everyone could survive being in a situation like that. I mean, you might survive, but not mentally break apart when you get back on the the trail with uh, on the water like how do you go about recovering from that um process mentally so it went back to the people again because you know um as we, you know when me and francesco left we made a formal complaint to the malawian government and we got support from the malawi government we got contacts like you know uh, they treated us like quite well and they apologized on the uh, malawian government so they, um, uh, what's it called? They actually took me to the, uh, to the chief who was holding my kayak. And uh, luckily he, he didn't steal anything, but this, oh my goodness, this guy was such a piece of work. <laughs> and, you know, he tried yeah. to take my hand, I remember, in this village. And, you know, I refused. And I remember there being hundreds of people surrounding me, like hundreds of the, of the, of the villages that were there. And again, it was like a soap opera for them, you know? And when I didn't shake the hands of the chief, you know, every, everyone just went, whoo. And I remember um, that was a defiant moment that I think may have inspired other people because 
when that happened, they started helping me. You know, people started putting things in the kayak for me, um, like a bunch of kids, you know, teenage boys, and they carried my kayak. I didn't even have to carry my kayak. They carried my kayak. They carried my, my, my bags, and, they, you know, and we did this long walk to the water, and it was so surreal. Like, I mean, honestly, it's, it's an experience that I, I just can't possibly, it's like, it's hard to explain, but it's something that I feel like it doesn't, it's not a regular thing that happens to people in their lives, um, where, an entire, where hundreds of people are carrying a kayak and chanting and cheering for you. I actually have a clip of that video where I left the shore and it looks like, I swear, over a thousand people just screaming at the top of their lungs and like yelling and, you know, giving me good luck um, to continue my journey because they understood what I was doing. Because, you know, at the end of the day, everyone eventually understood my story. And it was that this guy is exploring Africa and he's not from here. And he's doing it in a way that is, um, you know, puts himself in the shoes of the people. I can never fully be in their shoes, but it's the closest that I believe that you can be in the shoes of, of, of all these different people in, uh, in Eastern Africa. And so I felt like it was a very hero moment, you know. I mean, I actually just got, I just got shivers when I, because I'm visualising and I'm visualising you walking down to the water. You've got all these local people. You've been, like, isolated, um, at least, you know, physically, uh, you know, for a couple of days and you're about to continue on with your journey and you've, you had a rough trot in Malawi. Like you got malaria, you got arrested, you just got out of like trying to, you know, being shot at. Like it was a rough couple of weeks, got a rough couple of months for you there. It was a little, it was a little dodgy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did it, as you got further uh, north, did it get a bit easier? Uh, no, and that's where, that's where things started getting yeah. rougher and rougher, right? Tell me about the northern part of the trip. So that was a very, I feel like that's like a different Africa, you know, after Tanzania. So Tanzania was quite the same. I I became used to understanding the lingo. I actually started speaking Swahili and I was able to understand the customs of of certain cultures and, you know, um, understanding like Islam more as well. So I became very like, you know, comfortable actually because at this point I was so comfortable that I started getting rid of certain things in my backpack so my backpack became much lighter and I started to look a lot more casual I didn't really want to look like I'm this crazy guy that's uh, walking across Africa anymore so I started getting rid of my my boots and started replacing it with uh, running shoes just really cheap running shoes that you know you you buy at the flea market I just needed something with rubber underneath it that's all and, um, you know, so that part was, it was easy breezy. So I would say Tanzania, Kenya, easy breezy. And then boom, you hit Ethiopia and then, whoa, like you get into like this new like culture shock. That's intense. In fact, actually Kenya, it was like a, a buildup of that because once you go halfway across Kenya, like once you go past Nairobi, you start meeting tribes that are living in the bush, right? Or you start meeting the Maasai, tri- authentic Maasai tribe who then start joining, they just randomly join you on your walks. And they, I swear, they don't say a single word. They're just like smiling at you and they're just walking with you for miles and miles. And, you know, you meet some of the boys as well who are going through the um, um, 
the journey, the the coming of age journey, where they you know transition into adult. So you know that I think I feel like Kenya warmed me up, and Ethiopia was just like a complete culture shock. Forty five or forty nine different, uh, completely different tribes, very distinctly different and different terrain. It goes from like desert to savanna to to mountainous. It was just incredible. I mean, Africa is just yeah, the way you're describing it. It just highlighting how diverse it is. You know, diverse from you know landscape to people to language, um, you know, to culture, and it just. I mean, it must have been incredibly fascinating. Did you have a chance to journal some of these stories or have you done that since you finished it? Yeah, no, I absolutely did. I was actually recently looking at some of my journals and um, it's really interesting how, you know, each day was uh, it's quite, a, you know, an unremarkable day on the, until like something incredibly remarkable happens. Oh, my. And did, when did um, Francesco leave you? So he left when, um, I believe, Tanzania, um, yeah. Man, so he, he really did up, like, quite a bit with you. A couple, like, how many months was that? Well, it was only a few months, but it wasn't like we were together all the time. So, you know, as I said, like, in Malawi, we would meet um, from time to time. In Mozambique, we walked for um, a couple of weeks. And in Tanzania, we just did a re-vacation t- together. So you, you hit Sudan. Can you kind of talk to me about that experience? Because it's, you know, you would have taken some time to get across that space. What was kind of the character of that experience? Sudan was, um, again, it was the, the pure, it was like the Sharia law, right? So it was a very new experience for me. And um, I had to learn a lot about customs, actually. But what I really learned about Sudan was the power of the, of the women, really how incredibly um, it seems it's such a strange culture because it's it seems like so patriarchal with the Sharia law and how it favors men like almost 110%. Uh, but the women are so incredibly strong and I think that's why the, uh, the women led the, the revolution. Uh, I think it was like, you know, the, in the last couple of years. And, you know, I got mm. to meet a lot of these women who were part of that and I remember we were having circles. They were so vulnerable, but yet so strong. And they taught me a lot about hospitality, um, community, and being able to you know, share your vulnerability and that it's not a weakness, but a strength. And you know, a lot of people, they say, well, why did you enjoy uh, Sudan so much? It's basically a desert. And to me, it was actually, when it came to people, it was my favorite, like one of my favorite places for sure, 100%. I mean, were you ever not able to find a place to stay at nighttime? No, not. um, There would be times in uh, possibly like in Kenya or, you know, I mean, it depends on what you mean by what is, uh, what places are not possible to stay in. So if there was like, I would say, you know, conditions where the, the weather was really bad and there's no shelter or I couldn't build shelter, then maybe like that. But hospitality-wise, I don't think... Um, Africans were very kind to let me stay in their homes. And 99% of the time, I never understood what they were saying because we were speaking completely different languages. You just would have had to have learned so much about yourself when you're pushed to the edge and also yourself when you're in 
monotony because whilst there was a lot of intense and extraordinary situations that happened, I'm sure there was like the mundane and the the everyday in that as well. And, you know, I guess what do you feel is the relationship that you learned to develop with yourself during that time? It's two years, two years of your life. So the relationship that I developed with myself was I became my own best friend. I uh, went through this um, unknotting of, you know, all the past, um, you know, challenges that I've had. And I've just essentially like, you know, as a metaphor, uncombed them slowly. And as you know, if you have long hair and you comb your hair and you have knots, it hurts, right? Because you're pulling on it and you want to like pull on it harder and harder. But, you know, I had to gently um, unknot them. And I think I've had the time on my own to, to really discover some of these knots where they were. And uh, it was very, it was very uh, peaceful, you know. Like my, you know, combing the knots of like my estranged father and, you know, some past relationships and all that kind of stuff. But also particularly um, just myself, like, you know, the demons that you kind of keep under the rug, you know, all those different uh, things that you you start to uncover can be quite scary, actually. But um, I think it it essentially saved my life. When you finish the project, um, you know, I'm... I'm presuming, and I could be wrong, but there there wasn't really anyone there for you, was there? It was a very unceremonious finishing line, right? It was, yeah, it was actually quite sad because I was like pictured myself um, finishing with my family, a bunch of friends and all that kind of stuff. That was early on in the expedition, you know, I was quite naive. And then at the end, what happens is, uh, and this is quite strange, and I think a lot of um, other explorers who go on these long expeditions can relate, is you start to lose touch with your friends and you know a majority of them just kind of just disappear and it's not out of malice or anything like that it's because you're just not in their lives anymore and you're focusing day to day on you know survival so you're not really like on social media checking up on how people are doing yeah i actually can relate because when i ran across india when i flew back to australia i I remember i when I was on that flight, I'm like, okay, there's going to be, there's going to be people for me at the airport and, you know, I'm going to be welcomed. And I, I visualized that and I got out and there was actually no one there. In fact, my partner at the time had mucked up the times and wasn't even waiting for me. Oh, no. I'm like, oh, okay. Talk oh, about no. anticlimax. <laughs> but, and I was disappointed to begin with. And then I was kind of like, you know what, that's actually perfect because it wasn't, I wasn't doing this for the praise. Yeah. I wasn't doing it to be revered as being any any different than anyone else or any better or, or even, you know, special than anyone else. I was doing it for the experience of it and, and for the social impact side of it as well. And it, I think it's actually a humbling thing. It brings you back down to earth pretty quickly, which I think some people can, uh, adventurers can transition in a challenging way when they return home. And and let's look at that because you, you finish the project, you're on the road and on the water for two years, you get back to Toronto. How do you shift back into that type of life? Well, it was difficult, actually. I would say for a year, I was definitely um, battling some, you know, depression. And, um, you know, it, it, it was getting really deep at, at times. And, you know, but I, I cared enough about myself to, to, um, to I, I would say, not ride through it, but to, you know, 
self-heal slowly day by day. And it didn't work all the time, you know. There were rough times, uh, especially when it came to looking at how your friends are in comparison to how you saw them before. It's almost like you're a completely different person. And I felt like I was like this impersonator in this like old life. Like I'm coming from the future, you know, to the present. And it was such a strange um, uh, journey actually coming back. And that in itself was actually um, an expedition, <laughs> you know, is to go through your old life and how people see you differently and how you see them differently. I think that was really exciting. But after about a year, I, um, you know, I still started traveling a lot. I, I went to New York a lot and uh, I went to Abu Dhabi, Dubai for some uh, festivals. And, um, you know, it, it was, uh, I think at that point I realized that life is not the same anymore. There's no way that I could do a nine to five job. I think it's really interesting you, you share that and it's such great um, insights that, you know, it's very hard coming back home. And I actually think why it is hard is because you don't ever think about it. You know, you think you spend a lot of time preparing for the hardship of the expedition. And even though it's always different than what you expect, you know that it's not going to be easy. And I think, you know, on your expedition, you kind of think about this like triumphant return or the excitement of rejoining your friends and your family. And then you realize, oh, no, it's actually incredibly different. Like we're different people now. Right. And I think the lack of preparation or awareness to that is what makes the transition even harder. So, you know, I... I really kind of want to like shape up this conversation by by talking a little bit about diversity in the outdoors because you've become an incredible advocate for trying to shape the well shape the change into the face of what it means to be an explorer. Um, and you know you've got some probably really incredible insights about your journey to source sponsors, what it was like for you prior to doing Africa, and what it was like. Um, afterwards, mm-hmm. uh, and also just what do you hope to achieve um, through the advocacy work that you do um, through your adventures? Yeah. Um, so, you know, prior to crossing Africa, I knew nothing about uh, raising funds for these expeditions, but, you know, I tried my hardest and, you know, so I went fishing for sponsors and um, I wasn't able to get any bites. So I decided to just go on it without the support. And uh, I think it was quite sad because, you know, I just kept getting rejection after rejection. And, um, yeah, you know, so that was a, quite a bit of a challenge. Um, I think most people thought I was joking. But I, I suppose with the BLM, it's, it's getting um, people starting to realize that inclusion is, in fact, very important because the more people you have interested in the outdoors, the more people in general will be interested in the outdoors. And that's something that seems to be so... It's such an odd thing for me to think about that people don't even realize that, Um, you know, because the outdoor industry is very, um, I would say, I would say it's very, um, uh, you know, monocultured. It's very small. You don't really have a lot of people outside of the Western world as invested in the outdoor um, activities in such a way, right, where we're taking care of uh, uh, how we treat nature and all that kind of stuff. But I believe that, you know, with the inclusion of more people in the outdoors and getting people more excited about Arctic challenges and climbing mountains, 
I think that would intuitively make people want to take care of the earth more. And, you know, we can't fight this climate crisis uh, with a very small group of people who right now are dominating the outdoors. It's not going to work that way. It's um, we no longer live on earth where, you know, you're on an isolated island and what you do won't affect other people, which inevitably will affect yourself, too. I believe now we're in an era where we need explorers who can help guide humanity um, in the way forward where we don't destroy our planet. Well, I loved your cover on Experience Life, um, with <laughs> the title being like Follow Your Own Path, and you just, it's a great one, and I'm definitely going to share it in the um in some of like the social collateral because it's just this incredibly powerful image with you with your bike and yeah was it pretty exciting to kind of be a cover man <laughs> um you know it, it, the funny thing is i um i think if i ever do like a cover or or anything like that um or um, a feature in a magazine i try not to uh, think too much about it like i appreciate it and it's great um, but then, you know, I'm, I'm ready for the next adventure, you know, I'm ready for, I'm ready for now. Like, I'm always like, I'm thinking now, like, let's, like, how is now feeling? Uh, let's, let's enjoy the moment. Your, your social media, you have been speaking about representation and diversity and, you know, I don't want to push you to talk about it if you don't want to in this conversation, but, you know, seeing you on that front cover in an adventurous lens is also making a great representation as well on a far more broader context than we typically might see. Absolutely. I believe that um, representation uh, in the outdoors through, you know, whether it's uh, gender, sex, or race, I think it's hugely important um, for a number of reasons. One, because I think uh, we all deserve it. We all should have the opportunity to showcase our talents and to showcase our, our differences and I think that's beautiful. I think it's um, there should be rainbows in the in the outdoors. You know, I don't think it um, it it looks. I don't think it's as as tasty. You know what I mean? When you uh, don't put enough spice in the in the food, as my mom would always say. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> I think that's the best way to really put it. As uh, you know, do you just put pepper or salt in your food, or do you do you mix it up with some cayenne pepper and you know like. <laughs> So, we need to have all the flavors. Exactly, right? And um, so for me, that's that's how I've always seen it, and that's what inspired me. And and to finally have a, a magazine that that did that, um, I, I you know I've seen that they have they've had other um, people of color on the cover as well, but as an explorer and an adventurer, um, me being the first one to be on there was actually uh, quite a privilege. And it really shows that, um, you know, what I'm doing before I started this, which was my goal to, um, to, to be that representation of, of, of people, in the, uh, people of color in the outdoors. Because I wanted to originally inspire the youth. I wanted to inspire people that look like me who were young kids. Like when I was a kid and I saw the Black Panther, I was just lucky to be able to see that. But I don't want kids to be lucky to to witness that. I want kids to just turn on the TV and it's like, oh, yeah, it's normal. Like, yeah, Mario or anyone that looks like me or is like me um, or female or whatever, you know, I want them to to look at it and be like, okay, great. I, you know, I, I can do this as well. 
perfectly put. And I, I do have to tell you that I, I got a my husband got a message and he just forwarded it to me. Um, Team Onyx Adventure Racing, who took part in the world's toughest race eco challenge, they emailed my husband and said, "I see that your wife will be interviewing Mario. We have been trying to reach out to him to get onto our team." so you're in demand and I'm now fielding your PR requests and your team requests so give them a call back (laughs) okay that's that's amazing I love this is so beautiful yeah I love this community you guys are amazing that's so cool um well I've got to tell you you need to you need to chat to those guys because one they were amazing out in Fiji and it would be so cool to see you in an adventure race bringing your style um, because, you, you know, you do a lot of exploration and adventure, but it's sometimes nice to kind of play up with the dynamic and, you know, I don't know if that's kind of your cup of tea, but I'd love to, I'd love to be in a race with you. Hey, oh, <laughs> that would be amazing. You know what? Why not? Yeah. like <laughs> I'm going to take a look at <laughs> your message and I will definitely respond to it. I mean, you know, going back to the whole BLM thing, though, uh, things have been getting really busy with brands, and I've been um, I've been reaching out to uh, well, they've been also reaching out um, with all these different brands who previously I didn't really have um, even a chance, and um, I think the reason now I have a chance is because it's it's allowed a lot of people in the uh, top positions to not have a blind eye to anyone that doesn't look like traditional part in the outdoors you know and uh i think that's that's amazing and uh so that's gotten me really busy and uh i would love to do i would love to do the challenge like that as well actually but if if you haven't heard back from me it's because like just right now things are getting really hectic Oh, it's, uh, you know, I've got many of my friends who are sharing similar experiences where, you know, the doors have been closed to them uh, for uh, many, 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 many years mm-hmm. and those doors are starting to open as they deservedly should be. Um, mm-hmm. And it, I can only imagine the navigation that that might be now to deciphering where you want to place yourself into as well. Correct, yeah. Yeah, well, know that you always have a A-plus cheerleader in me and uh, it's been such a privilege to have you on the podcast. I was really excited to talk oh, to you and it's, yeah. Yeah, it's been a joy getting to kind of follow your journey for so long and then to even do a deeper dive research before I got to speak to you and uh, I can't wait to share your story and I hope that we get to spend some time together in real life, Absolutely. hopefully not too soon into the future well i definitely got to come to australia and um i don't know if there's a race going on you know i might be down for that who knows like i'm open to pretty much anything anything that excites me (laughs) i hope you guys love that conversation with mario you can find him uh, via all social channels at mario rigby i'll put his website details as well as his youtube channels in the show notes And next week's episode is with the incredible Diana Rahl. She's a keynote speaker, a diversity advisor, innovation leader, entrepreneur, and was the ex-MD of Apple Australia. So hope you can tune in that week. And remember, if you enjoy this conversation and found it of value, please subscribe, rate, and review. Have a great week.